I do devotionals throughout the week. I really enjoy just sitting back and just having other people help me along with my walk and getting me focused on the things that I should be doing as a Christ follower. And in one of my devotional readings, I came across an article written by Tessa Thompson. And if this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I really would want you to listen to what she would have to say because it directly impacts what we're going to learn and what we've been learning in James. She writes, I will never forget the morning after my first son was born. After a safe delivery at home, the midwife had packed up and left us to sleep. My husband was pleasantly surprised how, by how well we all slept that night, and he woke up eager to dive into parenthood and change a diaper. That was the moment we realized that in all of our first time planning over the previous nine months, we had failed to purchase even one pack of baby wipes. Preparation is the key. Whether we are welcoming a newborn or aiming to get dinner on the table by 5.30 p.m., the Christian life is no exception. Trials, tests, and temptations of all shapes and sizes are inevitable on this side of heaven. Every day we are reminded of the fact that we are fallen creatures living in a fallen world of broken dishwashers, dementia, and the daily burden of our own remaining sin. Not to mention, we have an enemy who is fiercely intent on keeping us from the slightest growth in godliness or the smallest enjoyment of God. For many of us, these realities are not a shocking surprise. The question is, what are we doing to prepare for them? In his first epistle, this is what Justice read a few minutes ago. In his first epistle, Peter writes to Christians who are suffering persecution. They are grieved by various trials that are severely testing their faith. The hardships entail more than persecution from without. After all, they will have to respond to persecution, and the remaining sin will surely tempt them to think, speak, and act in an unholy way. Indeed, they are hard-pressed. Interestingly, Peter does not spend most of his time giving us explanation of why trials are, the, are, are happening or advice for how to escape them. Instead, he reminds his readers of what is true in the gospel and tells them how to be holy as they follow in the footsteps of Christ. Peter does not write with the goal of releasing his readers from trials. Rather, he labors to help us be ready for them. This is an important distinction. The Christian's readiness is not an attempt to be sovereign, to predict and dodge every situation that, we may, that may cause pain or frustration. We prepare for trials and testing, not so that, that there won't be any, we prepare so that when they do come, we will be more likely to respond in a way that is sane and steady rather than sinful and short-sighted. To say it another way, preparation doesn't prevent our circumstances from being hard, but it does help our response to be more holy. Sober-minded readiness is not something that can be cultivated overnight. It is not even something that we can achieve through our own efforts, but it's something that the Holy Spirit must form in us. That doesn't mean that we sit on our hands and do nothing. God has provided us with simple and straightforward means of grace to help us along in our affliction-ridden journey towards heaven. Daily putting those means to use helps us develop a mind and a life that is anchored to heavenly realities so that we are prepared to face trials and temptations when they come. That's very insightful, isn't it? To prepare for trials and temptations 
It's the same truth that James has been writing about, and not surprisingly, in a very similar way. James has been, throughout our time in his letter, been very pastoral to his dispersed flock. He cares about them because they are hurting and being persecuted. However, his letter has focused on how to practically live like Christ while enduring persecution and while dealing with pain and suffering. James wants us to be prepared on how to deal with trials and suffering and pains and persecutions. He doesn't take time to sit back and tell us, this is okay, you'll be okay, it's all right. He says, this is part of life. This is what you're going to endure. There's no way out of it. There's no stopping it. But let me tell you how you are to respond while you're in it so that you can bring honor and glory to God and be a light to the world. Amen? You see, we're not going to get out of trials and temptations, but we can be prepared to meet them head on. You and I are not displaced like his dispersed flock was. But there are many people in the world around us who are paying a price for their Christianity, for living obedient lives of Christ. They are losing their lives. They are putting in, being put in prison. They're having their families separated. We don't deal with that yet. But as our culture becomes more and more secular, we're going to find ourselves more and more in need of being ready to handle persecution. And that's why we have been studying through James over the last number of weeks. And this is why it's important for us to understand James. Our times in James has been hard, but James has been preparing us for times of persecution, just like my devotional said. And so, as he closes his letter, as he closes his letter, James is finishing out, helping us understand how to handle trials and temptations. As we saw last week, James is focusing his closing on two practical responses his first flock should have while they endure temptations and trials and persecutions and sufferings. He says in chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, he talks about patience. How about everybody saying amen to that? Patience. You all whispered. Nobody was willing to say, patience is part of who I am and part of what I need to do to respond to trials well. Because we don't want to be patient in trials, do we? We want God to fix it now. We want God to take it out of our lives right now. We are not patient. The next practical response that he has been talking about is prayer. Patience and prayer. And we're finding that in verses 13 through 18, which we started last week. Last week we saw that individuals who are suffering Christ followers, they pray as part of who they are, as part of what they're made of. They pray. They go to God before they go to any place else when they're suffering and in need. We also found out that cheerful Christ followers pray. They rejoice and they sing praises to God with hymns and songs because they're happy. And both, and, and both of those situations happen sometimes in the same day, don't they? Where we, we find ourselves really struggling or really suffering or having troubles with persecution in school or at work, and then we find out later in the day that a son or a daughter just got hired in a new career that they've been looking for, 
and we rejoice with them and we rejoice to God that they answered the prayers of that son or daughter. We can experience both of those as individuals in prayer. This week we're going to be in verses 14 through 15 where James focuses his attention on elders praying. So if you'll turn with me, please, to James chapter 5, verse 14. It's on page 1,291 of your pew Bible. And before I begin this, I'm just going to be flat out honest with you all and say that this one passage is a passage that many pastors, including myself, really struggle with wanting to even address or preach. Not because of the truths contained within it, but because it is considered one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire Bible. Because of this, preaching, uh, it, preaching it can be very tedious, because each section, it seems like almost every phrase has so many things to work through so that we can understand from James's point of view and from the dispersed flock's point of view. Let me give you some just example questions. What does James mean by 6 in verse 14? What does James mean by anoint in verse 14? What does James mean by prayer of faith in verse 15? What does James mean by, uh, by will make the person, the sick person well in verse 15? Those are all questions that we need to answer. As you can see, there are a lot of questions. And what makes this even worse, at the, for each of those questions and others that we will ask, there's about four different answers depending on where you stand with your theology. There's four or five different ways to interpret or approach those. If you're a Catholic, you're going to approach them one way. If you're a charismatic, you're going to approach them another way. If you're a prosperity gospel uh, adherent, you're going to approach it one way. If you're an evangelical Baptist, you're going to approach it another way. And, and it really becomes tedious. How do we work through that? How do I bring you, all of you, to that point without sitting here and keeping you here for three hours going through each of the things and helping you understand what each... So, um, with this in mind, I'm going to do you a favor, all right? I'm going to preach, you, preach to you the position and where I have landed on this. I'm not saying I have the final answers to all these questions or the absolute right interpretation. I'm not telling you that. But where I have landed seems to stay within the context of James's letter as a whole. If you and your studies land in a different place than me, no problem. But let me encourage you to study it personally before you land. Don't just take someone else's point as them being right, even mine. Work through the text, read widely, keep James's letter as a whole in mind, and have fun studying God's Word. So let me begin by setting the context which most of you are already familiar with. James's context is the box that any interpretation must stay in because James is placing his letter in a context. And everything that James is dealing with from his perspective as a pastor and from what he wants his dispersed flock to see is in a box. He gets to define that box. We don't. And so we need to stay and understand what is the context that James is in and what is the context that his readers are in and we take those principles and we take them to the 21st century over here and we say okay this is how it works for us so that's what's the context the context of the whole letter 
has been focused on James's instruction to his flock who have been run out of Jerusalem because of their faith. They have continued to encounter in their new homes great difficulties, tremendous suffering and persecution. And James's focus has been to encourage them to practically live out their faith during trials and persecutions and sufferings. He wants to, as the devotional said, he wants to prepare them on how to deal with life in a place that is really, really, really hard. And as he closes his letter in chapter 5, he kind of changes his tone a little bit, which we mentioned. Instead of saying, this is what you need to do, this is how you can know your faith is genuine, he comes up along and he's like putting his arm around them. And he's going, I know it's tough. I know it's hard. I know you're suffering. But let me tell you something. I'm going to encourage you to be patient because God's got it under control. And as you go through this, make sure you pray. And that's the context. He's he's closing his letter out. He's got his arm around them. And he's going, I know what I have said is tough. I know it has challenged you. I know some of it has made you mad. Because you don't want to think about it. But now's the time for me to encourage you to be patient and to pray. And as we saw last week, he, we, we talked about individual prayer. And this week, we're going to look at what is called the elder's prayer. And so let me uh, have you look at chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone of, any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The first question that we must ask is, what does James have in mind when he pens the word sick? What is that? What does he mean? And there's quite a bit of disagreement on exactly what James has in mind here. The Greek word, which you're not going to remember after this morning, okay, I understand that, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, okay, the Greek word that James uses is asthesino, and this word is translated sick at 18 times in the New Testament, and it's translated sick. And what we mean by that is like sick, physically sick. And we see that. I'm just going to show you a couple of these. I was naked and you clothed me. I was what? Sick. That's that same word that we find in in James in, in this verse, okay? And you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then we also see in Matthew, just a couple of verses later, and when did we see you what? Sick. That is physical sickness. That is the idea of the context of that passage. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 37, in those days she became what? Ill. What's another word for ill? Sick. That is the exact same word that is used in James chapter 5, verse 14. So it can mean sick, and it is uh, translated that way 18 times. But here's the kicker. It's also translated 14 times in the New Testament, not as being sick, not as being ill, but as being weary or worn out, spiritually and emotionally. So you have 18 times one way and 14 times the next way. And you know what determines what way it is? Context. How it's being used. Let me show you a couple of verses where it's used as being weary or worn out. We see in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. What's the idea there? Weaken. That's the same word, exact same word. Here it does not refer to sickness as an illness. It's talking about weak in what? Faith, spiritually weak. 
We also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroying the brother from whom he died, thus sinning against you and your brothers, wounding their conscience when it was weak, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Wounding their conscience when what is weak? Their spiritual weakness, their emotional weakness. It is not talking about illness in this verse. And then we also see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with what? Weaknesses. And in the context of what Paul is talking about in defending his ministry, he's talking about not weaknesses as an illness, but weaknesses in just taking care of the churches. Emotional and weariness. And it's interesting to note that the 17 times that this word is used in the epistles, not the gospels or acts, the 17 times this word is used in the epistles, all but three refer to weakness and not illness. All but three in the epistles as a whole. Considering the fact that this word usually means weakness in the epistles and that James's letter to his dispersed flock has painted a picture of Christ followers who are enduring great trials and suffering, I believe James has the idea of mental, emotional, spiritual weakness in mind here, not physical sickness. The emotional stresses of their persecutions could lead to physical distress, but the cause is still emotional and spiritual weakness. And, we, and, and the reason why I... I fall more on this side is because the idea of physical sickness doesn't seem to flow with the rest of James's letter as well as emotional or spiritual weakness because he hasn't mentioned physical illness anywhere in the book in this letter he has not ever mentioned uh, what to do if you're physically sick in suffering and trials and persecution everything in the bible in in his letter okay points to the fact that these people are weary of the struggle, weary of the persecution, weary of the suffering. And so when we start thinking about that, this idea of sick is going to be, will be flow better with the rest of James's book if we look at it as being weakness. In fact, in the flow of his letter, James is moving, look back up at uh, James 5.13. Is any among, among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Is any among you suffering? He is saying, if any of you suffers in the persecutions, which most of them were, he says what? Pray. He says pray. But now he is moving one step further because there's going to be people who are not just suffering, but who have come to the end of their rope. They are spiritually exhausted. They are spiritually down and out. Their emotions have become overwhelming, so much so that they can't even get out of bed. So we see a flow in James's thought process here in the idea of prayer. If you're suffering, and all of you are, pray. However, there's going to be some who have just come to the end of their rope, and there's going to need to be something special done for them. And we're going to find out that it is what? Call the elders, and they're going to be able to help. The people that he's talking about here are this fallen spiritual warriors, exhausted, weary, depressed, and defeated. They've lost motivation. They've hit bottom and are not able to pray effectively on their own because they're just done. Using the word sick here is not wrong. It's not. We even use the word sick in this way that James does here. 
When we say that somebody is emotionally what? Sick. We're not saying they're physically sick. We're saying they are emotionally or spiritually what? Sick. We refer to somebody who is struggling with spiritual issues. And when we use that phrase, we know that the word sick does not mean physical illness. And that's the way I think that James is using it. Because of the context of James's letter and the way the Greek word is used in the epistles, I believe that sick is equal to spiritual and emotional weakness. And it's important to note that those who are weak and weary know that they need the help of somebody who is spiritually strong. Take a look at verse 14 again. Is any of you, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. These folks realize where they're at. And we know that because where does James tell them to go? Where does James tell them to go? He says, let him call for the elders of the church. He didn't say, let somebody else call. He says, let them call. Why does he say, you call? Because they are the ones that realize what? They are at the end of their rope. He says, you call. You call the elders to you. They are to call the elders. And so throughout the rest of the morning, I'm going to use the word elder because that's what James uses. But what do we understand an elder is in our day and age? It's a pastor. It's me. It's me. It's people who have given their lives, who have been spiritually gifted to do what? To deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ and attend for a flock. And so he says, you call for the elders, or you call for the pastors. You call for the men that have been known to be spiritually strong and spiritually mature, the spiritually victorious ones in your church. You call them. You ask them to come. James instructs those who are in such dire straits to call the elders to come and pray over them and find relief and comfort in their strength and spiritual maturity. And we see Paul expressing a similar idea here as a general whole, not just directed at elders in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him with the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You who are spiritual should what? Restore him. Work with them. Go to them. Help them. We see that parallel idea in Galatians chapter 6. The wounded, exhausted, dismayed, defeated Christ followers are to ask their shepherds to intercede for them and ask God for renewed spiritual strength. And this is an important ministry of pastors today, and it will become even more important as our culture moves further and further down the path of secularization. We're going to find more and more Christ followers who are just struggling, who have been beat down, who haven't had a break, and they just need some spiritual, mature spiritual help. Those who have been beat up in the spiritual battle do not need to hear the opinions of human wisdom. They need to be strengthened by the power of God through their pastor's prayer. But we also need to understand something else. So often pastors are told they have neglected their flock if they have not been the ones to initiate the visit. Pastors often get in trouble. Well, you should have come over. You should have done this. You should have done this. The problem with that is that that's not what James shows here. James knows the elders cannot possibly meet the prayer needs of everyone in the flock. There's no possible way for elders to do that. It is a responsibility of the church body to pray for each other. We see that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or prayers for whom? All the saints. Who is supposed to support each other in prayer? Everybody who is sitting here. Everybody who is sitting here. If you know somebody needs prayer, go to them. Pray with them. We pray for each other. We search out each other when we're struggling. We help each other in the struggles of life by prayer. But what we are also going to find out that there's going to be times when elders are going to be needed for special instances when it's just overwhelming. When it's just overwhelming. I'm not saying that pastors should never reach out to those who are sick and weak in their flock. Pastors by nature watch over their flock and want to be there when they're sick, when they're emotionally sick. But they also have the important responsibilities of feeding the flock God's word, oversight of the church, which Paul admitted was a very heavy responsibility, protecting the flock from wolves and sheep closing, among other responsibilities. They cannot pray for everybody, and that is why we see James here saying, if you think that you are this in dire straits, you call the elder and you ask them to come over. It is not their responsibility to always do it on their own. He says, you call. You identify that you're this weak. Because when somebody calls and when somebody identifies that they're at this place, what are they more likely to do when the elder gets there? Listen. They're ready. They're ready to be here the prayer. They're ready to be ministered to. And now, as we continue, we come to another debated portion of this text. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What does it mean to anoint? What does it mean to anoint? The word here is alepho. And this word in the New Testament is never used, the realm of ceremonial anointing. There is another word that is used for that, and it's used almost exclusively for that, and that is the Greek word kairo. And that is normally the idea of ceremonial anointing. That is sprinkling like priest's clothes, setting them aside, ceremonial anointing. The word that James uses is not that word. In the New Testament, the word alepho describes a pouring over, a plastering on, or rubbing up upon something with oil. It is not just a dab, it is not just a sprinkle, it is a lot of oil. They are rubbing the body, they are pouring it on their heads, they are mussing up their hair and straightening their hair with it. That's the idea that James is talking about here. It could be used for medicinal purposes or to bring refreshing upon one's body, and we see that in Matthew 6, 17. But when you fast... What's it say? Anoint your head and wash your face. What's the intent there? Ceremonial? You know, putting a dot on your head or sprinkling? No, it's wash your face. Anoint yourself with oil. Get your face looking like you're healthy. That's the point there. We also see that in Mark 16.1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Who were they going to anoint? Jesus. Were they planning on just anointing him by putting a dot of oil on his burial clothes? What were they going to do? They were going to anoint his whole body, preparing it for burial. We also see it in John 12, 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. How much is that? 
when you're looking at a pound of ointment, ladies, in a bottle, how much is that? How many of you ever anoint yourselves with oil that much on any given day, ladies? It doesn't happen. Made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. How much oil was she wiping off his feet with her hair? A lot. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. How much does it take to fill a house with fragrance? A lot. That's the word, that's the idea that James is using here. A good way to translate this phrase in James chapter 5, verse 14 is to be this, rubbing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Rubbing him with oil in the name of the Lord. In the physical sense, James may have meant literally rubbing oil on the wounds and bruises of those who had suffered physical injuries to their bodies from the persecution we know the, that they were encountering. Do you think they were beat up and persecuted and whipped and beaten? Yeah. Would there be a reason to anoint them and to wash their bodies with oil and to in, in the ancient times when medicine was in its very very infant state oil was often used in medicinal ways and how do we know that remember the story of the good samaritan remember the the man who had been beat up on the trail and the the samaritan came along and what did he do he dressed his wounds and what did he dress them with oil and so in a physical sense could it have meant or could james have been thinking of, of anointing those who had been beaten up and persecuted, coming out of prison where they weren't treated well. And then we also, in a figurative sense, James may have in mind the elders using oil to invigorate, to stimulate, to encourage and strengthen and freshen those who had become so weary in battle they had given up. Have you ever seen somebody that has laid in bed for a long time? They're just very, very sick and very, very down and depressed. They don't even have to be physically sick. They're just depressed emotionally. And what do they look like when you walk in the room? They look like death. They're pale. They're drawn. Their hair is mussed up. They haven't been showering like they should. They haven't shaved. The women have not done their hair. They just look terrible. And in a figurative sense... The idea of elders coming in and praying and, and using oil to anoint them was to help them get cleaned up, help them to refresh themselves, to help them understand that what we're going to do here in prayer is going to help you, and I'm here to support you. I'm here to minister to you. <laughs> and let me just help you get out of bed. Let me help you. Let me, let me wash you down with some oil and, 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 and clean you up a little bit. So both it could, he could mean both physical and figuratively, and I think he does here. And this would have been part of the elders' intercessory ministry to the weak and hurting people. And this restoration ministry was to be done with, by whom? Or excuse me, be done, how was it to be done? In the name of the Lord. It was not to be done in the power of whom? The elders. Any truly biblical encouragement must help those who are struggling to focus on God and His Savior, Jesus Christ. The elders were not supposed to draw attention to themselves. They were supposed to do all this ministry in the name of the Lord, pointing them to the one who is going to help them be patient, pointing to them to the one who can encourage and bring health and vigor back to their life. One commentator put it this way, to do something in the name of Christ is to do what he would have done in the situation. To pray in the name of Christ is to ask what he would want and to minister in the name of Christ is to serve others on his behalf. It was to be done in the name 
of the Lord, all of this ministry. The prayer, the anointing with oil was supposed to be done in the name of the Lord. The big picture of James' painting of elders and praying over one of their flocks is that the persecution and suffering, the trials and tribulations and the temptations to live like the culture had overwhelmed a beloved believer. They were spiritually weak, depressed, focused on the difficult life on earth, and they may even be healing from some over, being overworked or being beaten and persecuted. In this big picture, this believer knows they need help. They know that they need prayer and encouragement, so they call for the elders, their pastoral shepherds, to come and minister to them through prayer and the physical healing and refreshing that the oil brought. And this picture, to me, out of all the other translations and interpretations, this picture here seems to me to fit with the whole rest of the letter of James. It seems to flow because the whole letter is about how to handle and live practical Christian lives in a very, very difficult persecution-type, suffering-type situation. And are people, are there going to be people who just crash in that? Yes. Are, are there going to need to be people who need to be ministered to by their shepherds? Yes. Not everybody in the suffering of persecution needs that. But there are some who do, and that is what James is speaking about. James continues his line of thought in verse 15, where he gives the blessed result of the elders' ministry of comfort and intercession. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So what is the result of the elders' ministry? What is the result of the elders' ministry? The result of the elders' prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That's what he's saying. The question that we need to ask is, what is the prayer of faith? That has been interpreted five or six different ways for this passage as I did my reading and study. What is the prayer of faith? In some theological circles, it means that elders have a special power to heal through prayers of faith. In other uh, theological circles, others see the prayer of faith as elders having the same authority and power as the apostles to heal those who are sick. Neither one of these interpretations and others are biblical. And in some ways, some of them stray very far from biblical teaching. The prayers of elders are not endued with any type of special power because of their special faith. What James means by prayer of faith is prayer offered in faith. They mean a prayer offered in faith. In fact, a number of translations today, uh, actually some of yours may actually already have that in there. Instead of prayer of faith, they have prayer offered in faith. And this, as has been the case throughout this passage, we don't just stop with what the prayer of faith is. We also have to stop at the phrase, will save. Look at verse 15 again. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And this has, again, caused so much discussion. And there are many different translations or interpretations, excuse me. If James is referring to physical sickness here, if he is, then the promise is that when elders come and pray a prayer of faith over the sick person, that person will be healed. What's the problem with that? What happens if he's not? Did the elder's faith not, was it not big enough? Was it not enough? Because the promise there, if we read it at face value, we take it as being physical sickness. If the elders pray, this person will be healed, period. 
There's no caveat. There's no condition. It will be healed. And so I can tell you myself that pastors praying over folks who are sick, physically or emotionally, do they always get better? No. In fact, sometimes, many times, they actually do what? End up dying. And so we have to deal with what does he mean by will be saved? The Jews would have understood that the idea of saved, okay, was the idea of being restored. Yes, the word means saved, but it has the idea of restored along with it. The Jews would have thought of it in this manner. The elders' prayer will deliver or save the weak, defeated believer from their spiritual weakness and restore them to spiritual wholeness. That's how the Jews would have understood this word. They wouldn't have just limited it to being saved. It was saved along with this idea of being restored. And so they were saved from their, what was causing them to be in bed, saved by being restored to health, being restored to a sense of well-being, even though the persecution, the suffering hadn't, been gone, hadn't left. The idea here, when he looks at verse, and the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick. We come back to that word sick again. So we understand that let them, uh, and the prayer of faith, we understand what that is, will save or restore the one who is sick. This word sick is not the same Greek word that was used previously. And we don't see that in our English translations. It's not the same word, and it has a very different meaning than the first word. In fact, this word never refers to physical illness in the Bible. This word for sickness is never used for physical illness. And we know that because it's only used in one other place in the whole Bible. And that is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow what? Weary. That is the word sick. The same word that is used in the last part of verse 15. We understand that this word, even through dictionaries, Greek dictionaries, does not mean healing of sick as in physical sickness. It again points us back to the first sickness it is the meaning of being weary or to be worn out because of suffering and persecution. As James continues, he makes sure that we know it is not by the powerful prayers of the elders that restoration happens. It is in the name of the Lord. The elders are but a channel for God's power. It is the Lord who will raise up the weak. It is the Lord who will strengthen them. It is through the faithful, righteous prayers of godly men that God will restore his battered sheep's enthusiasm to stay the course during such powerful suffering and persecution. James closes his section on elders' prayer with a note about sin and the weary, disillusioned, discouraged Christ follower. And this here is so important and it is so, it just brings joy to my heart. Because look at what it says. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He makes a note here. James has talked about what it means for the elders to come in and pray over this person who is disillusioned and persecuted and beat up. We understand that it is, uh, the prayers of the elders are a conduit for God to work through their ministry. We understand that 
it is this person is part of the process in that, in that they call the elders. But James kind of stops for a minute before he closes this out and says, by the way, I want to talk to you about sin for a minute. I want to talk to you about sin. James notes that if the spiritually weak believer has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Amen? Does sin often lead to weariness, disillusionment, discouragement? Does sin usually, if a Christ follower stays in that? And they can pray all they want. They can have the elders come and pray all they want. Is it going to do any good? Not until they do what? Confess that sin. David talks about repair my broken bones because of my sin. Help me to feel healthy again. Did God break his bones? No. He was saying that the weight of his sin was the same as his bones being broken. And that's the idea that James is here. The weight of sin, he's saying, if this person, if the person that the elders are coming to pray for, if they have sin in their lives, not, everything is not lost. Because the elders can help them do what? Repent and confess. The elders can help them understand that God will forgive them. And the elders can help them have, uh, understand that God will take that weight of sin, that weight of guilt off their shoulders so that they can start healing and feeling better again. What a glorious promise that is for all of us. When we start feeling the effects of sin in our lives, when we understand that we're not walking right, and maybe we've been that way for a little while, and we feel the pressure and everything seems to be just coming down on us, and we don't have a right outlook, and life just stinks. And it's not because of just persecution and suffering. It's because I may have persecution and suffering, but I'm also sinning. And James says, you want to know something? There's a way out of that. There's a way out of that. So what does one have to do to receive this forgiveness that they're talking about? Many of us are familiar with these passages. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you did what? And, what, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin and we all say, Amen. Then we also see, in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, will not feel better. He, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Again, we all say, amen. And then one in the New Testament that we're familiar with, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? Oh. Even if we find ourselves so overburdened by our sin that we can't even get out of bed, that we need to call the elders to us, call the pastors to us. I don't know what's going on. I need help. I need your prayer. One of the things that pastor should bring up, one of the things that elders should bring up is how are you doing in your sin? Is there any sin remaining in your life that is unconfessed? Is there anything that you may be hiding that you need to confess before the Lord? An elder needs to ask that. Is it proper and right for a shepherd to ask that when they go into somebody who is feeling ill and, and sick and who is feeling uh, oppressed? Yes. Because can sin cause that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if they say no, it is not right for the elder to look and say, are you sure? Tell me again. Think about it. I'll give you five minutes 
just to review your life. No, if they say no, then the elder goes and prays and goes with the idea that James is sitting here to minister to the person who is so overwhelmed emotionally, spiritually, that they need help. And he takes his job seriously in doing that. So let me take a minute just to wrap all this up. As you can see, this is a difficult passage to work through. And it can be tedious. And there is significant discussion on how it should be interpreted. And believe me, it can be tedious. And I do thank you for bearing with me going through some of this today. And this is only the very tip of the iceberg of being tedious. But as with all Bible study, make sure that you land if you land someplace different, that you land where you do on how to interpret this passage based on diligent study to find out what God means, not because it's your tradition and not because somebody else taught you this is what it is. You need to go look it up. This is, some, this is one of those passages that took, uh, which I'm pleased with, took me hours to go through because there's just so much here. It's not just at face value in the English language because the English language doesn't show it well. We covered a lot this morning, but we must not let the important details hide what James sees as great value. Elders, or what we know as pastors today, praying for those who are greatly suffering is part of the Christian life. And you need to feel very, very confident anytime you call a pastor, an elder to you and say, I just need your prayers. Don't take that too lightly because we understand that in verse 13, he talks about people who are suffering. But this, you call when life just gets so overwhelming that you need help. That you need somebody to walk, a spiritually mature person, your shepherd, to come alongside of you. Today's pastors may not rub you down with oil. I may bring some, just in case. They may not rub you down with oil when life has become overwhelming for you but they will come alongside of you and offer prayers of faith and that God will strengthen you they will physically hold your hand put their arm around you to comfort you bring you your favorite ice cream whatever it takes to comfort to encourage but most importantly they need to soothe you with the promises they find that God has given in his word when a pastor comes in to minister to you in this manner, he needs to be holding this. This is where the soothing comes from. This is where the truth is. This is where you come face to face with what God wants you to do in the situation that has put you in bed. This is where he needs to bring you. This is the ministering oil, if we want to put it that way. And he prays that you would take this and do what with it? Apply it to your life, and he is the one that's helping you to do it. It is the word of God. Because this is where we find the answers. This is where we find healing. This is where we find how to deal with persecution and suffering and emotional illness and all these things that life just piles on us. It's only in God's word that we find out how to change it. And so as we close out today, and as Michelle comes, I want you to take a chance here just for a minute to look in the mirror. Not so much personally today, but looking in the mirror 
okay? And going back to James 5.13, are you suffering today because of persecution, because you're trying to live like Christ followers in a pagan world? Then you pray. We learned that last week. But if you are here and a member of this church and life is just overwhelming and you feel a heavy burden just weighing upon you, if that's you when you look in the mirror, then you call me. You call me. And I will come and minister to you in the best way that I know how according to what James said I'm supposed to do. I will pray for you. I will comfort you. I will feed you God's word. I will put my arm around you. And I will stay with you as long as it's necessary so that you can begin to feel the strength and vitality that salvation in Jesus Christ brings to your life. So if you're there this morning, if that's where you find yourself, give me a call. If you say, I'm not there yet, then you know what you're supposed to do. Back to 13 again, you pray. You go to God. You bow before Him and humble yourself before Him and say, Lord God, I am suffering and I need help. And God has promised He will help you. Bow your heads, please.